Hello and welcome to season two of the Therapy Works podcast, the podcast that confronts some of life's biggest challenges. I'm your host, Julia Samuel, a mother of four, a best-selling author, and as you might have guessed, a psychotherapist. Each week, I'll invite you into my therapy room, where I'll be joined by a well-known voice or an unknown voice who will open up about a particular struggle they have faced or are still facing. My mission is to expand our understanding of therapy and prove that meaningful conversations, which may contain difficult emotions, can be profoundly healing. I just want to say a quick thank you to our sponsor for this episode, Youth and Earth. Youth and Earth are a supplement company designed to help us all feel younger for longer. Their product addresses the causes of aging at a cellular level and help us to maintain and sustain a fit and active lifestyle. Their NMN delayed release capsules are one of the staples of my anti-aging, much needed arsenal. I really love them. They're entirely natural, they boost my energy levels and work to promote cell vitality throughout my body. I feel amazing with them. So if you're like me and looking to slow down the aging process, then I encourage you all to take advantage of a very generous 25% off when using the code JULIA25 on your first order. Head to www.youthandearth.com now and give your body every opportunity to feel more youthful. I'll just say it again, www.youthandearth.com. Tricia Goddard, I cannot believe I am recording a podcast with you. I also can't believe that I'm asking you the questions because when we've met in the past, you've been asking me the questions. So I am enormously grateful to you for agreeing to be a guest. And you are a television presenter, an actress, you're best known for your hugely successful morning talk show. And now you're a presenter of Talk TV. Is there anything else that you are that I don't know about, Tricia? I'm also a special correspondent with uh, CNN. I work with Anderson Cooper and Wolf Blitzer and Don Lemon, which is amazing. It's it's very strange. <laughs> and it's, it's weird because, um, and I'm sure we'll talk about this in our conversation. Um, you know, when I hear people list what I've done in my career, it still comes as a, a surprise because I've, you know, and we'll talk about never feeling good enough and why and how that starts, I'm sure, Julia. <laughs> that is funny, isn't it? So it's always been my hobby. And then one day my hobby became my career. So I'm very, very lucky indeed. So it's, I mean, what I get from that is that talking to people, interviewing kind of being out in the world is a completely natural fit from you. But from what I also understand from other parts of your life, that isn't true for you all the way through you. No, no. I mean, talking to strangers, I've always said um, I have no problem. I, I did a concert for Nelson Mandela and I remember I couldn't see anything, just the lights when he first got out of prison. I, I, I worked with him. And somebody came up and said, there are 40,000 people in here. And I couldn't see. And I thought, I don't care. Sit me in a room face to face with one person. And like I'll this. need a quick trip to the loo. This is all right because it's virtual. And because I feel I know you. Yeah, we do. Um, yeah. yeah. So um, I've always been okay with that. I don't like crowds. It's funny. I don't like crowds at all. But. If I have a role and separation, I and, and talking with people, I run a movie in my head of what they're telling me. I, I, I always see what people are telling me. I watch very vid- vividly. I've learned to watch hand movements, eye movements, uh, and see if I automatically seem to feel if there's a synergy or a discord between them. You're kind of looking for danger, though, aren't you? If the words don't match the body language, then there's that in some ways a perceived threat, right? Yes. 
Yes. From, from that and also um, my big thing is betrayal. In, in, in big um. betrayal and little betrayals. So I'm looking, if you like, for almost subconsciously a betrayal between the voice and what I'm hearing and what everything else is, is doing. And it's funny, I can do that with strangers, but my God, I've missed some major red flags with people I know in relationships. It, you know, and I, I, you, you did something on Instagram the other day, which I totally agree about how we are different in different situations. With different people. That with different people. And when I have a very close vested interest in it, uh, in that relationship, not not with my children, but outside my children, um, I, I I will often miss cues because I'm hoping for something else, something more, something better. I'm I'm very much sometimes I, I call myself a, an optimist to to stupid degree. Um, and, and that's led me into many, many problems and not seeing writing on the wall, which is in my professional life, I'm in the complete opposite. <laughs> so that's so fascinating, isn't it? I mean, there's this idea that we have different parts, like as you said, and we have different versions of ourselves oh, yeah. in different environments. And it's like, you have your wise mind when you're working, but there's something like, I don't know what you'd call it, what part it is. Is it your child mind or is it a kind of hopeful, blissful ignorance version of you mm. that you don't want to see the flags? You can't bear to see yes. the flags yes. because it's too much. It's too challenging. I also think it's a fear of, I, I know it's a fear of confrontation as well. Um, and I, it's funny, I did, I, yes, I, I've covered that in, in therapy. Um, and but it was weird therapy. It's one that my ex-husband insisted I go to. And that face you're making makes me think that probably wasn't the best kind of therapy. It wasn't the best kind of therapy. However, it did do me good when I was going through breast cancer, not because we ever talked about breast cancer, but all the big, big stories about life and death, all of those things that come up with that meaning, meaning. Mm. But um, but. You know, my fear of confrontation was something, there were good and bad parts of it, but it wasn't my choice to go. Um, but I know why I have a fear of confrontation. And I've had to revisit that with my children and be very honest with them because, of course, they've learned from me. And we've that's fantastic because we might, they're adult children now. Two daughters, haven't you? Two, well, one's a, a they, them, uh, two, two offspring. But um, Maddie, the younger one, is a mental health social worker, uh, um, a specialist in mental health social working and a family, qualifying as a family therapist and does lots of children safeguarding and elderly safeguarding. And so between all of us, we've had the conversation and we recognise our fear of conf confrontation. And we can talk about it. And I think that's probably been better than any therapy I have because we've got, kind of got one therapist in the family and it's learned experience. But my my dad, who I, I always believed to be my dad and was... And then when I had lots and lots of questions, I was I always call it shamed, you know, mad, bad, sad, all of those having to keep me believing that that was my dad. And he wasn't, are you saying? He he wasn't. And he, I mean, when you see my sisters, they're lighter than my kids, my half sisters. And people say to me, how could you not know? Forgetting I was born in 1957 and England of the early 60s is not the England today. I mean, where I grew up in Virginia Water. I had a Sri Lankan teacher, which was a godsend in uh, one year. And then there was one other black girl called Kathy who was adopted from Africa. And everyone knew she was adopted from Africa. And I'd lived in East Africa. And, you know, but apart from that, no other people of colour. You, know, you can imagine Virginia Water, Windsor, all around no, no. nothing at all. So I didn't have other families to compare with. My mum was lighter than me. But... Dad, in East Africa, I mean, when we went out on the ship to East Africa, I think I was five, I walked around the ship holding his hand singing, I want to be daddy's girl. I mean, there was that hit Bobby's girl, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I remember when I was um, teased at school and bullied at school, really, um, every time the teacher read Enid Blyton and talked about the naughty black gollies, the kids would come up and just smack me in the playground when I was four. Trisha. Yeah, just smack that me. That is so awful. You're joking. Just smack me. Naughty golly, naughty golly, naughty golly. And um, 
So I went, I, I'm proper racist abuse. Oh, I mean, yes. I mean, and I loved, I never, I went into, we used to have reading corner and it was noddy and I had noddy books and a teacher would read the noddy. And then when we got to the gollywogs, things changed. And the teacher never protected you? No, no, God, no, no. You'll have to toughen up. That's what I was told. Is there a link between you fearing confrontation and these very early experiences oh. of physical racial abuse? I mean, is that a direct line? Oh, gosh. Or... Yeah, that's a, it, absolutely. I mean, there's such a thing as called racial shame, I learned much later on. Yeah. I never saw myself as any different because I had a white dad. I had... Sisters in between, we were like the United Colours of Benetton. Um, so I never saw... And a black mum. And a black mum. I never saw... When I say I didn't see colour, I thought that was... Everybody thinks that's normal. Your family's normal. My norm is the norm. My norm's norm, yes. So when we started reading... Uh, it started with Noddy, and I started uh, school at four. And I loved reading. I mean, reading has been my salvation. And you love stories, don't you? People stories and reading. So these kids, any time the golly rocks came up, they go smack. They come up to me, and I can remember their names. One was Jeffrey, this boy. What's it? Smack naughty golly, smack the naughty golly. So I then used to when she got out, I remember she pull out the book. I can I can see it. We sit on the floor with cushions. It's a trauma memory, right? Oh, yes. It's absolutely like live video in your body. Oh, it's... God. But the, the, the cushion on the floor, she'd pull the book out from the bookcase and open it. And I used to think, oh, this feel like this. And I knew the book. I knew the story. I knew where the gollies were going to come. And it just came after big ears saying this. And these eyes would all look around at me. And, I, and then when it came to playtime, I, I was allergic to milk. And they they couldn't understand why I was alert because many black people are. So I used to feel sick if I had milk. So I would drink my milk before I go out into the playground really really quickly. Um, drink it so I could say I'm sick. I'm sick. I'm sick. So I didn't have to go out there. But I remember this one boy Jeffrey. One time he had an accident and he messed his trousers. And a lady used to take us home, drop us off at each house on the way home. So this particular time, this Jeffrey, who was a ringleader, I remember I said, Jeffrey pooed his pants all the way home. Right. I was so happy to have something yeah. on this ringleader. Yeah. The next day, the teacher called me and said, you're going to sit in the naughty because you did this. This was dreadful, dreadful thing to do and made me sit there. And I couldn't. I could not understand how every day I was allowed to be smacked by four, five, six kids on and on and on. And yet I had once said this and I was in trouble. I, I, I couldn't understand. And that set a pattern, actually, in, in school. You know, once Africa was fantastic, fantastic. There were kids from every nation, every country. And I loved being in East Africa. Because you had a better sense of belonging yes. but has that pattern of injustice fear of unprovoked totally nonsensical attack and the kind of racial shame that that excruciating racial shame that that brings up in you has that I mean I can see it's still in you now but does oh. it play out in your life now well, Julia, that, that wasn't, I mean, that wasn't even the, the, there were worse examples. When we came back from Africa, we went to a small school in Norfolk and I sensed that my parents were struggling. Your mum really chose white places, didn't she? Oh my gosh. <laughs> well, no, that was dad because dad's oh. family was from Norfolk, you see, oh. and he's actually in the home in Norfolk now. But so we came back to Norfolk where all my aunts and uncles were and everything else um, when we came back from Africa. And then, thank God, after a few months, we moved to Virginia Water. Anyway, um, we went to school. Now, Africa, there were we were from five years old to 17 years old in the same classroom. Every country we did, they didn't care where you were from. They were Dutch, German, and we learnt words from everyone, and the world was one. And difference was cohesive and allowed with a sense of belonging. Yes. Rather than there's something to beat you with to separate you. Oh, yes, and everyone was there. All our parents had come either missionaries or... 
uh, mental health nurses or doctors to help Tanganyika become Tanzania. My mum was a nurse. Dad was a nurse as well, a mental health nurse. He was helping run two of the big mental health institutions. Mum went back to secretarial work so she could drop us at school. But everyone, the expat community, were all there for a common purpose. They all had a belief, the Peace Corps, in getting an African nation on its feet. So there was a really great camaraderie. Purpose, yeah. Real purpose and camaraderie and wild. So in the same way as I could feel that kind of excruciating shriveling when you talked about your school in when you were four, to this expansion, oh. to this aliveness, the richness, the vibrancy, the freedom, the... And wild, you say wild in the best possible way that you yes. can be anyone, do anything, freedom. Yes, and there was and no differentiation. There was no politics behind it. But whether you're a girl or whether you're a boy, whether you're a man or a woman, you were there to get this nation on its feet. So I went from that to a small village in Norfolk. <laughs> oh my goodness. So I go to school, and of course we could read. I, I would have been nine. We Our reading was off the scale because we'd have 17-year-olds and, you know, um, I had a basic of Latin. I was playing, you know, basic Mozart on the piano. Um, I could speak French. I could speak Swahili. And here I was with kids back to literally Janet and John, you know, early. Thing. So, of course, I was seeing the teacher always got me to stand up. I remember Stig of the Dump. I hated that book. Yeah. Get up. Yeah. Read these. The bullying was awful. I had a white cousin at that school, Amanda, and she would walk with herself and my next sister down to school. So as we were walking towards this school, we used to hear the N word chanted. Uh, 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 uh. Then when we got to school, and I don't blame her now. I don't blame her for giving her my, my white cousin. She knew what was good for her. She would peel off. Leave you. And my sister and I would walk through the gate and they'd form two lines and punch and hit. And the teachers would stand and watch. Punch, punch the N, N, N. There was this one girl called Julie, long blonde hair, who came from London. And I've always wished I could track her down again. She used to go, I'll fight with you, Trish. I'll fight with you, Trish. And she would cross the lines and come and stand with her back to me. So, Trish, get him, get him, get him. And I thought, oh, she was beside you. She was beside me. I thought, what? doing this my cousin would run off that way scarpered and she always came and every morning this girl did this and if you think at that age nine to go against all of these people can I ask you something though because I remember I've I've sort of been listening to you on, on other interviews and when you had your breakdown there was one nurse that yeah, saved you which was Elaine and it is that a pattern yes. so that you experience kind of unbearable brutality, sometimes racism, sometimes other horrendous things have happened to you? And the thing that has saved you is maybe just one warm, loving, yes. kind person. Yes. yes. And I've learned to look for that. I've learned to almost interview for that. But I've also learnt to be wary. Just to quickly come back and finish that school story. Yeah. I was, went, I was Sorry, go, No, yeah. I was going into the canteen one day. I'm going to sit next to my cousin. And one of the boys got his fist and went bang. And the tray went up in the air and the food went everywhere. The whole place erupts into laughter. I was so embarrassed. So I'm picking the food up and everything. And I go back. It's an absolute mess. So I join the queue. My face is burning. Head down. Go to the queue and everyone's laughing. And I said to the dinner lady, excuse me, miss, my food fell on the floor. And I never forget, she said, you've had, you've had, get, get, you've had. And everyone started laughing again. And I just couldn't stand it, Julia. I just burst into tears. I ran out. I was sobbing and sobbing. And this teacher came and sat next to me. The block, very white blonde hair, like a rabbit. He had big, very goofy teeth. And he sat down and he basically said to me, you're going to have to toughen up you have to understand we don't want people like you in this country and I know it's not your fault that you're here but you have to understand that people don't want people like you in this country and so it's going to be tough so you're going to have to learn to live with that this is going to be your life you're going to have to toughen up and deal with it 
I have never forgotten that. How do you sit? And as an adult, I've looked at nine-year-olds. How do you sit and say that to a child? In that sort of reasonable voice. Very like reasonable. Just, this is a fact of yes. This is a fact of life. Yeah. Like, it's not your fault. You're not wanted. But you're not wanted. You don't belong. It's up to you to toughen up. Never, never stop those children punching or kicking. They used to run up and just kick me like that. You know, that was awful. Then, as I said, we came to Virginia Water. We walked into our first classroom and there was a brown teacher. I went... He was from Sri Lanka, and there were twins from Norway, Malakans, uh, Wakim, Joachim, and I, his brother, and they were brown because they were all airline staff there. So, so St. Anne's in Virginia Water, money was the common denominator, and they didn't care what colour you were. There weren't many of us, but there were others. So you were, in the, you were safe again? Safe again. You weren't the odd one out? I wasn't the odd one out. And all the way through, I loved St. Anne's. I love Willie Perks. I mean, I, got, I won a place a very prestigious school, Willie Perkins. I loved those schools. I loved learning. And grateful to them, you said. Grateful, really grateful. Um, the headmistress obviously realised, Miss Sames, the first headmistress, I was different. And she'd call me in every lunchtime. And because I, she said, you don't seem to be tolerating the milk. So come to my office and we'll have hot chocolate. But every time you come to my office, you need to come with a subject to discuss. Something in the news, something's great. And that's from that's 12. Kindness. So I'd be like... And that, she she absolutely saw my love of, of, of news and I had to tell her what was going on. But what I'm interested... So you've had an incredibly successful career from such devastating beginnings. I mean, I imagine... That your mum and dad, although he wasn't your biological dad, he loved you like you were his child and your sisters, that that gave you a basis of secure love that protected you in some way. No. 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 Not not, not my parents. Not my parents, because dad, uh, unfortunately, from being daddy's girl, um, and he's... He's kind of admitted to that. When we came back to England, it changed. He was very, he was very violent. He started hitting, oh my and he said they worked so hard. My parents were both doing double shifts, and people would say you're making excuses and what have you. Um, he, but he said, "I wish I'd spent more time with my family." It flipped, Juliet. Flipped like that. And when he, a fully grown male, get the, uh, it's funny. Billy and I, my older daughter and I, did a show where we went back to, I took her back to that house in Strood Road, Virginia Water. And when I saw that corner where Dad would get me, I literally almost threw up. I said, Billy, and... and trauma. 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 He would punch and hit me and he'd call me bastard child, bastard child. I was a bastard child. And I knew, I was, well, I just, my sisters used to say, you're adopted, you're adopted, and... My parents were both working two jobs. There was a lot of pressure, a lot of stuff going on, I think, in their own marriage. Dad was very aggressive and violent. Mum wasn't, but mum was very proud of the school I went to. It, I, I felt I was celebrated for what I did and not, not who I was. I was too loud. I had too much energy. I was a show-off. I wanted to be accepted and loved. I mean, my sisters went to ice skating and had elocution lessons, had all these extra classes, which they probably needed because they were in a comprehensive school and had various degrees of learning difficulties, not huge ones. Well, my younger sister, my late sister did, and she developed schizophrenia quite earlier on. But um, And she died, hasn't she? She's dead. She died. She, she took her, her life when she was 27. It was noise, Julia, noise and confrontation. Another sister of mine was displaying early signs of, of mental illness, which you know, it was noise, chaos. I was given a special room to do my piano practice in the front room. And I think there was a lot of jealousy because I was mum's kid because I was the bright one. And the other three were seen as dad's kids. And the, the fighting, Julie, the fighting and the noise and the chaos. And I didn't know when I was going to be hit because it could come out of nowhere. We could be having Sunday dinner. My dad would roll up a paper and just go bap on your head and go, what's that for? He said, 
nothing just to show you I'm in charge. It changed and I got out. I mean, I left home and left school. I was a year younger than everybody anyway, but I left school. Um, when I look at my kids, I like, I had to get out. I had so many issues. I wouldn't stand on the fourth stair. I had obsessive compulsive disorder. Um, I had eating issues, but I just hid it. I'd have a biscuit, rich tea biscuit in the morning with a nip of sherry where my parents hid it. And that was it. You know, I had so many issues, but I knew staying in that house any longer. It sounds dramatic, but I knew I I couldn't survive. But you have good instincts. I mean, what sounds terrifying is the unpredictability and in the place where you're meant to be your most safe and most loved, whereas where you were in danger. So it's like school earlier and then you find a safe place at school, Mm. but then... You had a very dangerous place at home. Yeah, yeah. And the picture that is emerging for me of you is that your kind of clever, professional, performative self, you could switch on and worked incredibly well for you Mm. and enabled you to fight for this incredible career in all of these different ways in Australia, here, Mm. big talk show um, here in the UK, and still incredibly successful. And that the most private personal you is still present in you. Although I want to know you had difficult relationships with three previous husbands. Mm. I think one was quite good and the other two were were terrible. Mm. As far I mean, to put it simplistically. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think they're all pretty bad. Anyway. Oh, were they? One lasted longer. One lasted 20 years. And I think that was um, one of the failings of that was my recovering from breast cancer. And that's kind of what opened my eyes to the controlling nature of it. So, yeah. Kind of, I can understand the roots of difficulty to trust mm. and this idea of of not seeing red flags when you're working, but somehow kind of longing to be okay and longing to be mm. safe overcomes yeah. good instincts. And so you chose badly. Yes. yes. It feels like... Now, in your mid sixties, you've learned. You, yes, I and, and what is it that you've learned, and how come you're learning now? Do you know, my greatest learning has come from my adult children and Black Lives Matter. I a lot of things that I put down to my failings because I believed art from that little girl who got smacked because of naughty gollies, to the teachers there. I I hadn't even processed it in my mind, Julia, but I blamed myself. Internalised racism. I blamed myself. I remember brushing my natural hair once and my dad saying, oh, it sounds like a horse eating hay when you brush your hair. My mum was a generation where they hot combed your hair so it was straight and you could never go out in the rain I was terrified of the rain and that that wasn't because they were bad they were a product of their generation and their own racism yes I mean they had received racism they'd received because black and white living together they I mean you know went no blacks no dogs no no um no Irish you know that sort of thing I I blame myself. I really, really did. I never saw my colour until someone pointed it out to me. But I was the first. I didn't realise I was the first black person on Australian television until journalists came and said, what does it feel like to be the first black person we've had on television? And I remember I went jokingly, which did not translate, me, black? Ooh, oh, yes. So in some way you had, although you've been bullied and beaten and kind of really traumatised by being black, somehow you hadn't let yourself know fully that you were black. I never saw myself as black. I saw myself just as a Trisha. As Trisha. Yeah, and then Black Lives Mattered. And so much stuff came out of that. Other people saying, talking about the things that I'd internalised that I could recognise. And my kids saying, Mummy, you know, you're like that. And, And they'd gone through it in Norfolk because I'd gone back to live in Norfolk. Um, but that's where I'd been headhunted too. And I always believe, because I do have a deep faith, I'd always believe, hey, you've been brought back to face your demons now. Come on, you stop running, you're here. Do something with it. So um, 
my kids recognised that. And I recognised it in, in them when one of them was called Afro bitch at school and Billy was quite proud of it. I went, whoa, 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 whoa. They pointed out things to me and I read about things that I thought was me not being able to do it because there is that kind of thing of lighten up it's a joke can't you take a joke and there's thousands of people saying that their lives have been traumatized and they've not been able to speak about it because when they did there was the teacher who told them to toughen up or somebody said take it as a joke so you saw yourself what happened to you which had felt personal and there was something wrong with you you recognize finally that this was racism and what racism looked and more yes, importantly yes. felt like. And you recognised those awful stories were not yes. just you. It wasn't about you failing or not being good enough or something wrong with you, but this was to do with racism and the colour of your yes. skin. And it's the little things, like people always wanting to touch your hair and all those microaggressions. So I learned that. And, and also the other thing that happened is when my... Uh, last marriage was breaking down. It took a long time to break down. It was awful, awful, awful. And I didn't tell my kids, but they could see me shrinking. I mean, Julia, I'm five foot six and I went down to eight stone. And I thought I looked great, but I kept falling over. I had injuries. I was working out obsessively. I was drinking and it didn't take a lot of alcohol because, and I was having all sorts of issues. And I was still I couldn't work for three years I, oh, I was working on and off but I just was so consumed at that stage my ex-husband was, was like I love you I love you I want you back no I hate you I hate you I love you I love you I want you back yeah and, and having this affairs and all oh, this sort of thing and on and on and and I didn't tell my kids and they saw it going on so when it finally came and I I realized to be safe and because it was an Australian divorce I could do it online and I told I rang him up and I was putting on this nice face and I said by the way divorce papers are coming tomorrow if you're not at your home they will go to your office so at 10 o'clock they're going to and he was he started crying shocked you know and I said what how are you shocked? You know, I never thought this day would come and anyway once I'd done that and I told my kids they were angry more angry with me for not, you know, hindsight, not saying any, not telling them because they were adults there. And then there were these conversations where I'd say, Billy, I love you, but I cannot deal with this. We were all trying to look after our mental health, each other's mental health. It was a mess, Julia. It was a mess for which I'm forever grateful because we all got real. We all stopped playing the part of mummy knows best, uh, Maddie the peacemaker where Maddie's always in the middle and doesn't have a voice. Billy as the disruptor and what have you. We all had our roles and we stuck to them rigidly at first. And then we just started saying it how it was. Real truth. The kind of breakdown of the facades or the roles enabled you to connect and love each other. So it is the lesson that truth, however difficult it is, is better than fake, than better than some kind of armour. With the people you love most, you have to be most honest. I mean, don't get me wrong, it was horribly painful oh, at the time. Terrible, yeah. But for someone who doesn't like conflict, it must have been awful. And we all said, we don't like conflict. And guess what? And then we saw the conflict constructively where you said to someone, you know what, darling, I'm going to give you space. because, And we learned to navigate that. And we learned to, re- we all said we hate conflict. Out of that now, we can have those conversations without that heat. It's so, so different. We became so close. Oh, my God, so close. I mean, I don't see them as much face to face, but we FaceTime. So in my terms, that's you've learned to fight productively by being yes. honest and you repair after the fright. Yes. And so you've kept, you've allowed differences and you've kept the love and connection alive rather than being distanced by put, pretending and faking it mm. for each other in a way of protecting each other in a way distanced you. Yes, absolutely. So can we end, although we've, I want to go on forever, <laughs> with, it feels like love is what is saving you now. So having had these devastating relationships really, and 
such external success. It feels finally you've come home in your body, in your relationship, yeah, to a place of safety. Is that is yes. that right? Yes, very true. I decided that was it. If I never met anybody else before, because I've never had to be in a relationship, I've kind of almost been, especially with my my ex husband. I was kind of the big earner. Pre- well, I was. I've always been the earner, and I was prey preyed upon. Sounds a bit dramatic, but I think if you're a deer with a broken hoof, there's certain animals that will see you as you know. But so I said, you know, that's it. If I never meet somebody else, it's fine. Once I'd got out of that state and I started going back to work and I, you know... Got yourself steady. Got myself steady. I don't have to be in a relationship. But I did say yes to everything a girlfriend invited me to, purely because I thought, like many older people, my friendship base was shrinking and I wanted to increase that. So I went to the most mad things. And I went to a horse riding ball at a very, very, very posh... Uh, Greenwich establishment. Um, there was one other black person there, and the singer. And I, so, I, I, which I didn't care about, and I didn't wear a ball gown. I got got it completely wrong. I wore this mad outfit. I love clothes and sequin harem pants. And I was sat next to this chap, and my girlfriend had set him up with, um, in that wonderful Jewish way, with somebody on the opposite end of the table. And I was listening to this woman talk, and I was listening to this chap talk, and I thought it was hilarious. So I nudged him, and I said. Just giving you the heads up, Susan thinks that you would be good with that lady over there. She's got a horse farm in Maine. And this is very urbane chap sitting there. I was just laughing. And we just laughed and laughed and laughed. Uh, Long story short, eventually, he was a friend of a, a very, very good friend. So, you know, he gave me a lift home. And I said to this friend, if he kills me, I will come back and haunt you. He didn't. He got me home. And... A few dates in, I I thought, you know what? I'm not doing this again. I wrote this list of questions, Julia. I think it was 20, 25 questions. Real questions. I thought, if you could go back into your future relationships, what would you have wanted to know right from the word go that you didn't and you discovered awfully? And I asked, I said to him, before we go any further with this, I've got some questions. And Gosh, I went, I'd and like he, to see a list of those questions. He said to me, what happens if I don't want to answer one? And I said, that's fine. That's honestly, that's absolutely fine. That says something about that itself. And it was like, what's the worst thing that ever happened to you? What's this? What, you know, and one of the things we clicked very early on, I heard in his voice, he said something. And I said, he said, um, I'm just divorced. Um, and I'm a widower. And I looked at him and I said, did your first wife have breast cancer? And he said, how did you know? I don't ask me how. But he had nursed and stayed with it all the way through. And he understood me. He'd say things like later on, oh, shouldn't you wear your pressure garment, your pressure sleeve? I mean, things that I'd been kind of embarrassed to have before. Wasn't embarrassed by scarring, things like that. But anyway, I gave him this questionnaire, went through all these questions. It was the best thing I did because... There were no right or wrong answers. Yeah. And he said, can I ask you questions? I said, no. <laughs> but it was the best thing I did. And it's held true. He was honest. So there's, again, that honesty. If there is one lesson that you want other people to protect themselves earlier than you did, that it took you a bit too long. I mean, you can't regret these things. Yeah, no, no. no. Would it be to ask for the truth, see the truth and tell the truth? Definitely there's nothing to be lost by asking. You know, when I follow my gut instinct, my absolute intuition, my gut instinct, it's it's successful. We are animals at core. Yes. It's what I use in my work. We are Your animals smell. at core. Your smell. That's what, you know... When I choose to ignore those because of some airy fairy dream or wannabe or some some story, something like that, always to one's detriment. Go with your if you feel something is wrong in your core, it is wrong. It doesn't matter what they're saying, they can bring flowers and it is, it is wrong. wrong. <laughs> that is a marvelous way to end. Thank you so much, Trisha. 
if it feels wrong and in your core it's wrong, it is wrong. It's wrong. One of the very special things about this podcast is that at the end of every episode, I get the opportunity to reflect on the conversation with my two psychotherapist daughters, Sophie and Emily. Sophie is an adult psychotherapist and Emily is a child psychotherapist. And as we all specialize in different forms of therapy, it is really interesting to see what their takeaways are what their insights are, and if they think there was anything that I could have said or done differently. You'll quickly learn not all therapists agree on everything. But let's hear what their thoughts are this week. The first thing that really strikes me is she and I are the same age, and that sense of shame and awfulness that because I'm white, I had no idea of what even racism was when I was growing up, when I was at school. I lived in a completely white world. And hearing the terrible bullying, that teacher who just told her to get on with it and not make a fuss and the terrible racial attacks that she experienced continually through her childhood and into her adulthood, it's so powerful to hear. And also I feel so kind of disgusted that in some way being silent, I was part of it because I was ignorant because I'm white. I definitely felt similarly in that I think that even though obviously Sophie and I are a generation later, I don't think we grew up hugely aware of racism. I think we grew up with quite rose-tinted glasses of thinking racism was something that was in the past and that it might be around now, but really only a little bit. And I think what hopefully is happening and has been happening for the last few years is a wider realisation that it's systemic and it impacts every aspect of life. And I'm hoping that our children will grow up with a greater awareness of that. And I think the other thing that I thought with Trisha in relation to that was her experience of this truly appalling racism and bullying, as well as some trauma from home. And it makes you wonder, where does the resilience come from? Because it seems like she was experienced trauma really from every aspect of her environment after she moved to the UK. And she wasn't safe anywhere. And yet came out the way that she is, which is incredibly intelligent, successful, all these really amazing things. And it does make you wonder about that intersection, about environment and genes and how they play out differently in different people and and quite how extraordinarily they played out in her. Absolutely. I think going back a bit about us growing up, not having this white privilege of not having to see racism. I also thought how when she was saying it was the Black Lives Matter movement that really gave her a language around racism. Wasn't that fantastic? And it was like, oh, it's not just white people who are starting to have a language and a framework and understanding of what racism truly may mean and our own position and relationship to it as white people. And I thought, gosh, you know, 10 years ago, if we were doing this podcast, we wouldn't probably have the fluency to talk about it as we're talking about it now. The fact that it's finally broken out of its sort of bounds, you know, people have been campaigning around racism for decades. Well, hundreds of years, really. And it feels such a breakthrough that... We equipped her with a language to to understand her own experience. And that common thing of so often, I think about it with clients too, that we blame ourselves for systemic difficulties, that somehow I'm the one who's failing or I'm the failure, when it can be poverty, it can be discrimination, it can be just bad bloody luck. It can be... Um, know the things that have happened to us in our life and that there's sort of so often there's systemic factors that are like Emily said like what is it that makes us who we are and particularly in psychotherapy it's quite easy to blame it on the individual or not even blame it but somehow locate it as something wrong within you rather than you're unwell in an unwell system I'm talking generally about clients that makes sense to be unwell in an unwell system how you feel makes sense and I think that can be such a relief To be like, oh, no, like, of course I am anxious. This isn't just me failing. Yeah, not obviously talking about Trisha, but for people who do 
struggle with mental health, which I think most of us do on a spectrum, right? Most of us have something that we struggle with. But being able to make sense of it and say, oh, well, this is the connection. Of course, I had this experience. This makes sense for me to feel this way. And that we live in constant connection with our environment. And so how our environment changes how we are and vice versa. The other thing relating to what Emily said, that despite so many influences that were unsafe and damaging and threatening, she had this incredible capacity to thrive as a professional. And I was thinking this for people generally is that how she could have conversations and trust herself and trust her instincts and trust her intelligence in a work environment, whereas in an intimate, close environment, she often couldn't fight or couldn't speak for herself. And I think a lot of us recognise that, that somehow when you can put on a different version of yourself, internal family systems, a different part of yourself, how you can be really a very different person. Yeah, and I think we are all different people in different situations and environments and hers was maybe to a a greater degree she also talked about when she was at work she had like a wise mind at work and at home not so wise and it made me think of I do an intervention called dialectical behavioral therapy with a lot of teenagers and one of the ways that you teach mindfulness in dialectical behavioral therapy is that you have different minds so you have your emotional mind you have your rational mind. And in the Venn diagram between those, you have your wise mind. And in life, you don't really always want to make decisions based on your emotional mind, because it ends up being really, really impulsive. So you might get very, very angry very, very quickly. But you also can't just make decisions based on your rational mind either, because you have to factor in feeling. So you can't date somebody who ticks all the boxes if you don't feel some sort of connection with them or take a job just because it ticks well you might have to take a job but you might want not want to decide to take a job that just because it ticks some sort of boxes but it's not actually somewhere that you feel like you'd be comfortable working and the idea is that if you can combine those two that you can balance out your emotional mind and your rational or reasonable mind then you're using your wise mind and when you have a difficult decision to make You need to try and separate out what is my emotional mind and what is my rational mind and how can I combine them to make my wise mind. That's such a lovely, helpful model. It's a lovely model. And it reminds me of when I listened to a podcast called about whole brain living. And I'm trying to remember her name now. We can put it in the show notes. I think she was a neurobiologist who had a stroke in the left hemisphere of her brain. So the whole left hemisphere of her brain shut down and she only had her right brain. And she's got a TED talk, but she also this she also has gone on to develop a model of the mind, talking about what different roles the mind plays. So the left prefrontal cortex and the left amygdala is very different to the right amygdala and the right prefrontal cortex. And she names them different characters. So she has a sort of one that's like the get shit done piece, which is the left side. Then there's the left side amygdala that's like memories and always thinking, have I been here before? Did it cause me pain? Is this a problem? Should I be afraid? Is this that bit? And then on the right side is the mindful, spiritual part. I was thinking about your model, M, of like most emotional, but also the sort of spiritual connection. Higher power. Yeah. So she said when she had the stroke, she just was in constant awe. I mean, she had no sense of self whatsoever. She was just part of everything because the sense of self is held in the left brain. I found it a very useful model because when you were talking, mum, about how we can have these splits, is the model is the idea that you can call on parts of yourself. So... For me, I can struggle with the get shit done bit. I'm all right at the spiritual bit. (laughs) When you remind yourself that you have these parts of yourself and you can call on them to show up when you need them to. Invite them. Invite them in and go, actually, I do have that part of me. It's not necessarily the bit that I go to most immediately. Maybe you're more rational. Maybe you're more emotional by inclination. You can call on these parts of yourself. They're there and they exist. And and I genuinely thought, oh, yeah, no, I can. I can just do it. Yeah, because I also think that there are muscle that you can build on once you're aware that you have the capacity, then you can practice. So the last thing I want to say, and this is such an interesting episode, I really think our listeners are going to love it, is her talking to her daughters and how her daughters, like you two with me, really enabled them to change their relationship by being honest. And they had different roles, her daughters, like you two have different roles with me. 
but it was the honesty and the difficulty of the conversations which eventually they overcame the difficulty and now they have a very different relationship and I, and I thought it gave us all hope that I, I mean we get on very well I'm not saying we don't but I think <laughs> the people listening <laughs> no but you know what I mean <laughs> What I mean is we have had dips or difficulties in the relationship that you don't have to stay there, that there are things that can happen that can change the relationship in our closest families. Yes, as long as you are open to it and don't shut it down. She was open, yeah. Yeah, she was obviously very open to it. But I think it can be easy to be reactive. Mm, To be defensive and shut it down. And I think it's you know made me think about the important role of adolescence in restructuring the family, that we do grow up with roles. Every family has roles. And you would know more about this than me, Emily, but I was thinking about how sometimes it can be so challenging, as, as I understand it, with teenagers, like that battleground. But actually, there's something productive going on there. You know, that thing of having useful conflict of like, maybe I don't want to be in this role anymore, or maybe I want to restructure our relationship. Not that they're necessarily thinking of it in those ways, but that is a window of opportunity for change as well as challenge. Yeah, I think it is that, but also serious challenge because so many different things are happening at the same time. Because you've got the neurological stuff going on, the hormonal stuff going on, this thing that teenagers have to accomplish of separation and also still wanting to be looked after that I think as a parent and as a teenager is very, very difficult to navigate because... You have a teenager who sometimes is like, F you, I want to do everything by myself. And then sometimes, you know, wants a hot chocolate and uh, sit with mum and dad and watch Gogglebox together. So I think as a parent, you feel like you're always getting it wrong. And as a teenager, I think often you actually do feel like your parent is also constantly getting it wrong. But I think knowing that there's a light at the end of the tunnel, that this is is not forever. This is a, a process that you get through and you get through it as well as you can. I just want to add a little anecdote. On Monday, I was in a book club and we're all women. And one of the quotes in the book club is that the mother's place is in the wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it sucks. (laughs) Sophie and I are also mothers now. Yeah, it's coming at us. (laughs) But our children are really, really small. So sometimes, you know, sometimes they hate you. But a lot of the time, they're like little puppies who are just excited to see you. I'll be so sad when that ends. So thank you so much, Sophie and Em, and a particular big thank you to Tricia for really such a powerful conversation that I hope will really influence all of us to have a deeper understanding of experiences outside our own. And for those of you listening, if you think this is an episode that will be important or helpful for others, do share it and please rate and review and subscribe to the podcast. Until next week, thank you. Thank you.